0: Open to Galatians chapter 2. In a moment we'll read beginning in verse 11. You'll find Bibles scattered around under the chairs in front of you. And if you need one, you can grab one of those and open it. And you'll find Galatians 2 on page uh, 1,165 in those Bibles. 1,165. I want to start though with a quote I want to interact on before we read Galatians 2. It's from an author and a pastor named Ray Ortland says, it is possible to sincerely preach true doctrine while at the same time utterly deny that doctrine by an ugly, anti-gospel culture. He says, it's possible to preach and to believe truth, true doctrine, meaning what we believe, what we teach, what we hold to our theology. It's possible, he says, to get that right while denying it with an anti-gospel culture. And he doesn't mean culture outside the church. He means a culture inside the church. We can say we believe something, and yet the culture of the church and the way we relate to each other can deny that. Let will show you another quote that gets at the same idea. This is by an author named Jared Wilson. A message of grace may attract people, but a culture of grace will keep them. What our churches need, not in exchange for a gospel message, but as a witness to it, is a gospeled climate. I don't know whether gospel can be used as an adjective like that, if that's proper grammar. But it's it's a great truth that that a message of grace we want to hear. But if people hear that, but don't see that in the culture of the church, it's going to deny that message. We need a gospeled climate, the climate, the culture, the atmosphere of the church. What we teach matters. We must teach and believe what the Word actually says. And what the Word teaches is a message of grace, rich, unearned favor from God. That's grace. And we can see it running through Scripture. We're saved by grace in Ephesians 2.8. We're justified, and we'll come back to that term justified later if that's a new word for you. We're justified by grace. We stand by grace. It, God freely bestowed the riches of his grace on us. That is very much the message. But does the culture of a church match that message of grace? And what we'll see in this passage is that we can deny with our behavior, this message that we're bringing. It's possible in the church. That's possible in your home. You can have a, a Christian home that you want to be one where you're explaining the gospel, but the culture in your home may not match that. That's the challenge from this passage. Let's go ahead and read it now, Galatians 2 starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus." so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God." I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We're going to walk through this really in three parts. We see this culture of grace. And the first part is a gospel denying behavior that we see in verses 11 to 14 in Peter. A gospel denying behavior. The, the scene here, just to set this, it moves from Jerusalem, which was where we were in the first half of chapter 2, to Antioch. Jerusalem is, of course, this historic capital of Judaism for a 1,000 years, going back to the time of David. That had been the the central city of Judaism. But now they've moved from there to Antioch. It's a city in Syria, modern-day Syria. It would be a Gentile city, a Greek city. And there, there's a mix of Jewish and Gentile people. And so Peter has been in Antioch, and he's been hanging out gladly with these Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians. He's been eating with them, Probably eating the same food as them because he says, uh, Paul tells of him he's living like a Gentile. He's probably not just eating at the same table but the very same food until these other Jewish Christians come. And out of fear of them, he pulls back and, and he stops fellowshipping with them around the table. And you kind of maybe wonder, what's the big deal? It's communicating something very significant, and it's something that actually undermines the gospel that Peter says he believes. I want you to consider why. Up until Acts chapter 10, there was really a separation between Jews and Gentiles that went back all through the Old Testament, where one of the ways that the Jewish people were set apart from the nations around them had to do with what they eat and wouldn't eat. They wouldn't eat things that were unclean. They would only eat clean foods. They wouldn't eat with foreigners who ate unclean foods. They would only eat separately. And then in Acts 10, God revealed to Peter that was no longer to continue. God gives Peter this vision of these unclean animals coming down from the sky, and a voice tells Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. The favorite verses of many hunters in the room, right? Kill, eat. Uh, But Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. These are foods that were unclean under Old Testament law. But again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. That's Acts 10 verses 13 to 15. He's been cleansed. No longer consider it unholy. But then it moves not just from the food but to these Gentiles. So there's a Greek man named Cornelius. Peter gets connected with him. And this is what Peter says to Cornelius and about Cornelius is Greek says, this is Acts 10.28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Peter knows this. This is, the one saying these words is the same one being confronted in Galatians 2. He knows this, and he's eating with them, but his convictions don't change. Just out of fear for what others might think, he pulls back. And by pulling back and no longer eating with him, he's saying you're not clean enough. You might have Jesus. We have Jesus in common. But to be clean enough, you can't eat this food. You you, you can't do these things or I can't be with you. He's saying you can't fully be accepted, fully clean, unless you eat the right things and don't eat the wrong things. Peter's not bringing a different message It's his life that's not matching that. There's not a culture that reflects the gospel. We get the idea that this is not a new occurrence for Peter in the sense of being ruled by fear. This is the same Peter who, on the night Jesus was betrayed and was crucified, he denied even knowing Jesus when confronted by a servant girl because he was afraid. So this is Peter, Peter the apostle, Peter the pillar, one of the kind of three of the 12 that were most closest to Jesus doing the wrong thing. He's sinning. And I want to pause there for a second. Isn't that like a little bit comforting to you? That this one that was really held up as a leader among leaders could still like mess up. He wasn't canceled because of it. He was confronted. He was confronted actually with the gospel and reminding him of that. A little side note on this. Martin Luther, during the Reformation 500 years ago, and they were really pushing back against the ways that the established church had kind of added to and added to Scripture, he used this passage to argue that the Pope and the established church could be wrong. Because he said, if Peter could be wrong, then we could all be wrong. The established church, the Pope could be wrong. And he used this passage to argue that. Peter, it says in verse 14, was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Put your eyes on verse 14. If you have a New American Standard, which I'm reading from, it says they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. If you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, it would say they're not keeping in step with the gospel. The Greek word behind it is actually a word that you guys know. It's the word orthopedia. If you ever heard of like an orthopedic surgeon? It's the same root word. It has to do with straight walking. He says, Peter, you're not walking straight with the gospel, not walking consistently with the gospel. So Paul confronts him, not for what he's teaching, but for what he's doing, for this this culture that he's allowing to build. And so that's what we see next, a gospel-motivated confrontation in the second half of verse 14. Put your eyes there again on the text. It says, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, This was public. Why? Why not pull Peter aside and talk to him individually? It was a public issue. It was a significant issue about the gospel. And others were getting drawn into it. Did you notice? He said even Barnabas was getting caught up in it. Barnabas, this close companion of Paul, even he was getting caught up in this hypocrisy. So that's why it was dealt with publicly, even though typically we would handle these things one-on-one, sometimes there's a need for things to be done publicly. Paul would say the same thing to his disciple Timothy later on in 1 Timothy five nineteen to 20 where he says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, it is those elders, those leaders, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. There's a time for public confrontation. And in his wisdom in this moment, he decided this was one of those times. But what is he actually saying? Look at verse 14 again. That quote. He's saying, Peter, you being a Jew, Peter was a Jewish Christian, a Jewish background. You live like the Jews or like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. In other words, Peter, up until now, you've been eating with them. In fact, you've probably been eating what they're eating. You've been living that way. But now you're not. Now you're trying to compel them to live like the Jews. Peter, you know these rules are gone. These rules about clean and unclean foods, it's gone. And you've been living as if it's gone, but now you're trying to add them back in. You're trying to say, you can't be clean unless you get rid of these foods. He says, Peter, you're adding to the gospel. By, by what you're doing, by what you're communicating, even though all he's doing is stepping back. But he says that attitude, it communicates. And it brings in the challenge the this truth of the gospel that we can be clean and acceptable before God, not by food, not by these religious rules, but by Christ. And, and so it goes from there, from this confrontation to an explanation. And, and that's what we see with the rest of the chapter, is really a gospel clarifying explanation. He's clarifying the gospel, probably for Peter, but also instructing others in this, of, of here's, here's what I mean. Here's why this behavior is out of step with the gospel So he clarifies what the gospel is and showing the way that he's contradicting that with these actions. He'll say a few things here. He'll remind him first, Peter, you know we're justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. He says, Peter, your actions aren't matching that. But notice, notice the way he explains it. Look at verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners. And maybe you can even put that part, sinners, in quotes. Because he's not saying that Jews are innocent and the Gentiles are the sinners. But he's saying that's the reputation that the Jewish people have had of the Gentiles. They eat all this unclean stuff. They're the sinners. He says, Peter, even if that's the case, even if it's these Gentiles that are the sinners, we, we Jews by nature, verse 16, know that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we, even we Jews, Peter, you and I, these, we, we Jews have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. This term, justified, you may have a clear definition in your mind, but you may not. And this is a key word, so I wanna take a moment to explain it just in case it is fuzzy for you. It's the first time it's introduced here in Galatians, but it's going to run through the rest of the book. It's a legal term. So in a kind of understanding of the gospel, there are some terms that are more like family terms, like adoption, you're adopted in. There are terms that are more like sacrificial, Jesus as a ransom, as a sacrifice. This brings us into the courtroom. It's a legal term. It's the exact opposite of the word condemn. You can picture courtroom setting. The judge hears a case. He's got a big gavel in hand, and he says, he "Cracks it down," and he says, "Guilty." That would be to condemn. Or he cracks it down and says, "Not guilty." That would be to justify. In the way this is used here, it's the first time it comes up, but it comes up three times just in verse sixteen. Look again at verse sixteen, because I want you to see that it says there's two and only two ways in which we could try to be justified, declared not guilty. By the works of the law, meaning our own obedience to all that God has said, works of the law, or faith in Christ. And over and over again, three times here, he says it's faith in Christ, not the works of the law. Notice he says it in a general sense says a man is not justified by works of the law but faith in Christ it's general it's personal he says we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified it's universal he says no one no one will be justified by the works of the law like three different ways beating into our heads it's Christ it's Christ it's Christ it's not the works of the law uh, J.A. Packer, he explains it this way, this term justify. And I, in case it's so fuzzy, I, wanna, I want you to see this. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. So there's no penalty. It's not guilty. Here's the punishment. But, but you're entitled to the privileges as if you've obeyed. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. The crazy thing is, you're not innocent, are you? And, and I'm not. You're guilty. What, what, what we deserve is, gavel comes down, guilty. But the amazing truth of the gospel is, Jesus, who obeyed perfectly, his obedience is given to you as if you'd obeyed like Him. That's why you're justified is through Him. Not by the works of the law. Packer goes on to explain how this may have been, how it may have sounded so foreign to this Jewish audience who is so accustomed to the works, the works of the law earning them righteousness. And, and I want to read you this quote, and I want you to think about maybe how that same idea could be prevalent today. The only way to be justified, they might have believed, is sheer hard work. You have to toil at it. The work you have to do is the works of the law. That is, you must do everything the law commands and refrain from everything the law forbids. Supremely, the Jews and the Judaizers, that is, these Jewish Christians would go on, this means that you must keep the Ten Commandments. You must love and serve the living God and have no other gods or God's substitutes. You must reverence his name and his day and honor your parents. You must avoid adultery, murder, and theft. You must never bear false witness against your neighbor or covet anything that is his. But still, they would not have finished. In addition to the moral law, there is the ceremonial law which you must observe. You must be circumcised, and that was one of the big issues in Galatia. You must be circumcised and join the Jewish church. You must take your religion seriously. Searching the scriptures in private and attending services in public, you must fast and pray and give alms. And if you do all these things and do not fail in any particular, you will make the grade. God will accept you. You will be justified by the works of the law. What a weight. And Paul's saying, no, Peter, you know, we know. It's not these works of the law. We cannot be justified. But it's not that system. It's, it's faith in Christ Notice the kindness there in Paul directing Peter back, not just shaming him and saying, Peter, you ought to know better, but saying, Peter, this is what we affirm. We know it's not this food, it's Jesus. Why are you acting contrary to it? He's bringing him back to the gospel that he already affirms. But he anticipates an objection, and this is one that you might have asked or certainly one you might have heard from others. When you explain a gospel of grace, people ask, well, doesn't that just excuse sin? If, if it's Jesus and not our own obedience, isn't that going to just let people sin and do whatever they want? Won't they just sin because it's grace anyways? It's not their own obedience? He anticipates that question. He words it this way. He says, does that make Jesus a minister of sin? Do you see that at the end of verse 17? Minister is the idea of like a servant of sin. Isn't, isn't this going to just serve sin? Look at the way he responds. The very end of verse 17 May it never be. It's the strongest corrective term in Greek. It's the strongest way he could say, no, no. They're asking, won't this excuse sin? No. It's the same question and answer that we see in Romans 6. As he walks through this gospel of grace in Romans, he comes to the same question in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Should we just keep on sinning? Because it's grace anyways? May it never be. That's our same term. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So we can't continue to live in it. We have a different motivation now, though. And that's what he argues. Verse 18, he says, I can't rebuild what I've destroyed. This dividing wall of food, that's been torn down. I'm not going to rebuild it. But rather, verse 19 Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, yes, I I died to the law, meaning Jesus fulfilled it all. And verse 20, when he says, I was crucified with Christ, it's like when he died, I died with him. I died to that. But now I live to God. And, And that's the answer. That's why it doesn't excuse sin, because the one who's truly been forgiven wants to live for God. But he lives and she lives, not for acceptance, but from acceptance. Because you're loved, because you're accepted, you've been made clean, you get to live. It's a new creation he gives us. This is the point later in Galatians. In Galatians five, he says, God produces this fruit of the spirit within you. In Galatians six, he says neither, this is chapter six, verse 15, neither circumcision is anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation it's not this physical act. It's not this religious ritual. That you can take it or leave it. It's, no, you get a new heart to live for God. That's the answer to this excuse, this question of will we just sin? Now, I want you to get, I want to give you an analogy, though, that maybe helps. I want you to think of two baseball teams, two Little League baseball teams, both coached by a dad of one of the players. And in Team A, the player whose dad is coaching knows that his acceptance, his affection from his father is totally based on how well he plays. Completely unrealistic, I know, but bear with me for a moment. Imagine a team, yeah, where the dad as coach, if his son plays well, his dad showers him with affection, he embraces him, he encourages him, but if the son struggles, his dad gives him the cold shoulder, he, he perhaps berates him in front of the other teammates, and so, if he if he gets a good hit, if he throws strikes, his dad is all in favor and accepting him. But if he drops a ball, he strikes out, his dad rejects him. What is that experience going to be like for that young man? It's just going to go up and down. His emotions when things are going well, he feels close to his dad. When it's going badly, he feels distant and not accepted. But imagine another team, Team B. Dad is also coaching his son, but his son knows because his dad has told him and he's shown him in his actions over time that he's loved and accepted no matter how well he plays. So so if he gets a good hit and he throws strikes, his dad embraces him. But if he drops the ball and he struggles, the dad still embraces him, tries to coach him, help him to do better. but, But the son never doubts his acceptance and love. They're both playing the game. They're both even probably trying to do well, but one is doing well from acceptance because he, he knows his dad loves him and he wants to please his dad. The other one is trying to do well for acceptance. Very different, very different. And what Paul says here is like, Peter, we're justified by grace through faith in Christ. We're accepted, we're brought in, we're loved. You don't have to try to earn that, but now you're free to live for God. And Peter, those Gentiles you're trying to stay away from, It's the same with them. Why don't you treat them that way? Why don't you treat them consistent with this message of grace that we say we believe? Then he wraps up with one more point in verse 21. He says, Peter, to try to take it any other way, if we could be righteous by our own obedience, then Christ died for nothing. Look at verse 21 again. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. To nullify means to declare invalid, to to set aside. And he says, Peter, if this comes through the law, which you know it doesn't, then we're acting as if Jesus died for nothing. And that's not true. He he had to die. He had to die for us to be accepted, to be loved, to be justified. And, And so that's what we stand on now is grace. He'll say elsewhere in Romans 11, a really stark contrast, Romans 11, 6, if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It can't be mixed. It can't be grace and works. It can't be mostly grace and a little works. It can't be mostly grace and your obedience. This says it's just one or the other. And if it's grace, it's all of grace. What do we do with this? How do we apply this? I want to give you two things, but I want you to notice there's only one that's the clear target of this passage. Of course we have to ask, you have to ask of yourself, have I been justified through faith in Jesus alone? Have I been declared not guilty, even though I am guilty? Because I've trusted in Jesus, and his perfect obedience was given to me, and his death on the cross took my punishment. Of course the first thing we have to ask is, have I done that? Have you done that? But is that the target of this passage? It's not. Peter wasn't denying this. This is the target. Do I treat others as if I believe this? Do I treat others as if I believe we are accepted by faith in Jesus alone? Is there a gospel culture? Is the culture of this church, not hypothetically, but how you relate to people around you, is the, is the culture in your home like this, that you believe that you're accepted and they're accepted not by their obedience but through faith in Christ alone. I want to read you again the, a quote that I started with but with a little bit more context around it. This is by Ray Ortland again. He says, Why must our churches preach gospel doctrine and embody gospel culture simultaneously? Because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It." also requires relational beauty in our churches. But it is possible to preach true Drachten while at the same time utterly deny that by an ugly, anti-gospel culture. That's the target, that's the bullseye of this passage, not just what we teach, of course we have to get that right, but how we live in relationship with one another. So what are some things that would be out of step with the gospel? out of step with the gospel culture. Um, Hypercriticism of one another. Constantly critical, picking at things. Why? Why is that out of step with the gospel? Because the gospel tells us that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner, that I'm weak and frail, and I need Jesus alone. But then if I'm hypercritical of somebody else, I'm not acting as if that's true. I'm acting as if they have to get all their little ducks in a row as well and hide any weakness and everything has to be done perfectly unforgiveness is part of an anti-gospel culture? Why? Because the heart of the gospel says that you have been forgiven freely through faith in Christ alone and so then that needs to pour out to others. But if on the other hand I I hold back forgiveness then I'm not picturing the gospel in my relationship with somebody. Constantly bubbling anger? Why? Because the gospel says that God's Appropriate wrath towards you was satisfied and done away with. So who are you to live with anger always on the surface bubbling out towards others? Gossip. Why? Because gossip says that your sin is fodder for my entertainment. It, it's, it's, it's to share with others and to be entertained by rather than something that Christ died for and has been covered and forgiven if you're in Christ. Might need to be lovingly confronted, encouraged and helped to change, but not Not gossip. Making non-biblical issues a condition for fellowship? Isn't that exactly what Peter was doing? Took something that didn't need to be an issue anymore, food, and he made it a condition for fellowship. Do we do that with parenting choices? School choices? COVID responses? We take things that are non-gospel issues and we elevate them? That would be an anti-gospel culture. What should we do instead? I want to just point out two quick verses both in Romans, both after the longest, most beautiful picture of the gospel that we find in the New Testament in the book of Romans. Romans 15, 7, he says, Therefore, accept one another, welcome one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You've been accepted, welcomed in through Christ. Extend that out to others. Accept them, welcome them in. Romans 12, verse 10, and I love the way the ESV in particular puts this. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A gospel culture in a church is a culture of honor, encouraging one another, recognizing when somebody does a job well, thanking them for it. Why? Because we don't have to be defensive and protectionistic. or We're free just to encourage we show appropriate affection because because Christ died for them as well as for me, and they're adopted in. And that's a part of a gospel culture rather than a, a hypercriticism or a distance. Don't you want a church like that? And I'm not saying I don't think our church is, but but don't we want that to be the culture? Where sin, of course, is taken seriously and and it, Galatians will go on to get to that, but we're loved, we're, we're helped. When somebody's in a position of weakness, it's not to mock or to push them aside, but to help. When somebody's caught in any trespass, as Galatians 6 says, in a spirit of gentleness, we, we help. That's what we want. Don't, don't you want your home to be like that? It's a gospel culture in your home. And to do this, we have to take it personally. I'm going to end with just one more quote. This is again by an author, Jared Wilson, that I quoted earlier. He says, Most importantly... I must be what I want to see. So often as I am checking my church's pulse, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Life Together wisely counsels against doing, I am thinking of all the people who need to get their act together, who need a big dose of humility. He says, isn't that what we do? We hear this message and we think, yeah, this guy really needs to hear this, right? Yeah, if, if only they would show a culture of grace rather than saying, man, I need to do this. I need to do this. He goes on. We may be right about them, but applying to others first is not a humble impulse of grace taken seriously. I need to keep a close watch on my life and doctrine. I need to outdo others in showing honor. I need to practice confession and repentance. I need to humble myself. As I'm growing intellectually, I need to hold the fruit of the Spirit up to my heart and be fearless and honest about asking How am I doing in these areas? If we each say, I want to stir up a culture of grace, and we each own that, then the church becomes that. Let's pray.